32 <laughs> counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. This week's county is Meath and this week's question is everything we know about Newgrange wrong? Happy 21st, Andrea. It's, Twi- a, it's our 21st episode. <laughs> I was like, you know, I did get a facial. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the week that was, we are recording this on budget day. I mean, I always feel like the budget, it's, you know, just monopolizes all news coverage. And I understand that. But um, it just never really seems, it might be like a few quid here and there, gone or more. I like just paying attention to what they're investing in arts and stuff like that. Yeah. I just think I just can't get into it. I just think it doesn't affect anyone ever, apart from people who it does. Great in- insight. <laughs> wow! But wow. you know what Thanks, it does, Pascal. <laughs> the f- I was reading about the fiscal rules yesterday that they can't actually make very many big changes. So that's why it just feels a little bit underwhelming, maybe. Hmm. Potential. Um, relevant to our Meath episode uh, this week, uh, there was a piece about uh, the survey that was. Um, done on commuters, uh, people who commute to Dublin to work, and how 40% of them would take a pay cut to work nearer home. And 16% of male commuters leave home before 6am. That's no crack. Um, And these are basically uh, commuters from Kildare and Meath. The average journey time for commuters in counties Kildare and Meath travelling to work in Dublin is one hour and nine minutes. This is why we need to take whatever money the EU gives us um, for like Brexit aid and just build loads of high speed trains everywhere. Because if you had high speed trains going into Dublin and that took like 40 minutes from like Mullingar or whatever, it would also alleviate thousand crisis. Or even from Tala. Yeah. It takes like an hour to get from Tallaght in the morning at, at Rush Air, which is bananas. But remember there was a story about, not a story, uh, Kellyanne Byrne was tr- commuting from Glasgow because it was cheaper to live in Glasgow and yeah. coming home to work. Like, there is a lot of issues around A, our transport, B, our infrastructure, C, the world. The O'Devany's Gardens housing development debacle is ongoing. Um, I actually wrote a piece about this uh, in the Times on Monday and it's basically around um, so the the, the O'Devany Gardens in, in Stony Batter was is this kind of much maligned development that has been motoring on for ages and ages and ages and um, basically the eventually the when the flats were demolished um, Dublin City Council who originally owned the land did a deal or are trying to do a deal with Bartra a developer who you pre- made famous in many ways by their co-living um, proposals in Dunleary where 42 people would be sharing one kitchen which actually got the go-ahead if you can believe it um, so basically they're doing a deal with them and but a lot of the councillors and a lot of the locals were really pissed off that um, what was once all public housing was basically only a, a percentage of it was going to be um, public and then the the hoo-ha around affordable housing that a lot of the quote-unquote affordable homes were between 300,000 and 420,000 which is hardly affordable and that basically all the figures that Owen Murphy was was talking about in terms of how people would get loans that you could get you'd magically have a deposit of 31,000 euro to get a um, to buy a house for 310 and that you could get a bank loan um, a mortgage basically of 279,000 but in order to get that, you would have to be a, on a combined income of 79,000 and, and then you don't qualify, qualify for affordable housing. 
So basically what the latest is that there was a vote about this um, on Monday and the council were basically saying that the council, the council executive were basically saying that the councillors are going to have to vote um, for this deal with Bartra or else the pl- plans will be put on ice again. And what happened on Monday in Dublin City Council is the vote was actually postponed until next month. Um, and councillors got a letter from Owen Murphy. Um, quite a bullying little letter, yeah. wasn't it? Like, not quite. It was like an absolute bullying letter. Basically saying that they have to just sign off put the up. plan and that's it. From what I can tell from what's been going on, it feels like the executive have been taking a lot of advantage of the new councillors who are coming in who are finding their feet and using that to get things over the line. But also, I understand that numerous objections stops things happening. But if you're not... Think, listening to the objections and seeing why these objections are happening and coming up with another plan and not just saying it's this or nothing. Mm. It, like, how is anything meant to move forward? I think like people don't object to things for the crack. There's a, obviously warranted reasons behind it. So come up with solutions and not just say do this or nothing's going to ever happen. Yeah, it's it's just not the way to go about things at all. And when you think about it. Okay, of course, there are issues around um, entire housing developments just being social housing or just being public housing. And there is a way to do a better mix that improves um, the, the community in general. But this was public land, right? It was owned by the council. Mm-hmm. And Bartra have been contracted to build 768 houses and apartments, mostly apartments, mm-hmm. um, the biggest portion of which are one bed, um, two bed apartments, right? 411 of those are going to be sold privately by the company. So how is that any kind of value for what is public land and um, this kind of myth around, oh no, we the, like it still is public land, it's just that the developer is doing this thing. It's like, why are we handing over public land to developers? And this goes back to how the powers to build um, social housing were removed from local authorities and this is why we're in the shitstorm that we are. And But the threats that are coming... But it feels like the power was taken away from local authorities to give the power to the government so the government could push through whatever they wanted. Well, it was to give the, the power to private developers. Yeah. And, and like the this kind of attitude of if you don't do this, then nothing's going to happen. It's like, why is that? Why is this a binary choice? Is there not a third way? Anyway, that's ongoing. Well, I'm sure we'll be coming back to that soon. Another fucking shining jewel in Owen Murphy's crown. Um, how is he still going? Like, who knows? How is he still... He will go down in history as an absolute dose of hunters. Um, true, Truly one of the... the I mean, one of the worst ministers in, in cabinet. And like, this is a cabinet that has Shane Ross, so that says a lot. What's this? <laughs> Zing. I, iTunes is toast. What's going on? So iTunes has been disbanded, essentially. Well, not disbanded. They've broken it up. So podcasts are on their own platform. Music is on their own platform and videos on their own platform. So right. obviously it is a strategy to increase revenue and to go in competition with Netflix more and, with, and to give uh, the different platforms different ways to revenue stream essentially so right they're go they're go the big guns are out the and there was a big huge launch first you remember they had like all these like big celebrities like big celebrities oh Oprah was there Oprah, yeah. and whatever so this is it rolling out now okay um you have written here tidy town trauma <laughs> fill me in so stand by <laughs> the tidy towns competition highlight of many towns lives yeah 
six towns applied and the emails of the application never reached the server of the thing so they were never judged so there's absolute uproar now because these six towns have been excluded so now there is have they have to go back and rejudge these six towns because of this technical issue so there was a there was a, a lot of hullabaloo it was very dramatic that's not no crack no crack for but those towns but do you know it also is not any crack what President Trump his tweet yesterday of mass delusion where he said the words in my great and unmatched wisdom this is full on dictator lunacy now mm-hmm. in my great and unmatched wisdom how can he how can that have happened I, because that's just like what he does all the time but like it's just I just can't cope with it I, I just can't yeah I just no I, I can't do I mean I'm kind of off Twitter at the moment but I can't um, in I my can't. great and unmatched wisdom yeah well you know, that's just what he thinks about himself. He's a total dose. I want to go back to Dublin um, in, a, in a shock development. <laughs> and um, I don't know if people are following the redevelopment of the fruit and vegetable market in Dublin 7. If people are familiar with Hacienda Pub there just off Capel Street, the big old beautiful fruit and veg market that closed uh, trading recently. Um, Dublin City Council is seeking an operator to create a tourist attraction and a retail food space for Dublin 7's fruit and vegetable market. Um, I, it just the mind boggles as to so much discourse around how markets can be developed in the city something that basically the council has just sat back and done nothing on for decades mm-hmm. and that we need places where communities can actually utilise the existing structures within their spa- space in their neighbourhoods and the council turns around and it wants part of this to be a tourist attraction what about people who live in the city please and also I just don't understand why DCC are so afraid to do absolutely anything themselves like the Cork uh, market, the English market, is run by Cork City Council. And you can tell that that has the interests of the locals at heart because it's a functioning market for people to buy things every day. Whereas if this goes out to uh, a contractor, they're going to be driven by profits. And uh, Gary Gannon said a very uh, true sentence when he said, um, DCC have done such immense work well bringing the market to this point let's not relinquish control of the market to a private entity who would understandably make considerations that were profit focused first so if you think about what's going to make the most profits you're going to have chains in there you're going to have fast food you're going to have vape shops essentially and donut shops as opposed to what is required in a functioning market that will then become a tourist attraction in itself even if it provides for the local community firstly so I think there, it's just bananas why won't they do anything themselves yeah like a, a functioning market is something that people enjoy of the fabric of the, the city the Barcelona one stunning yeah. the Lisbon one stunning Cork one stunning yeah many anyway. stunning ones we'll uh, keep abreast of that and we might bring you a special uh, podcast on markets in Dublin soon that is the news of the week now to our county Hit me with the mead facts. Bum, bum, bum. Population 195,044 personas. Lovely. The Irish name of County Mead is, oh my God, my Irish is coming on leaps and bounds. Cuntina me. And the literal meaning being the middle. 
Mm, like Malcolm. Uh, the county is drained by the River Boyne. I think that's such a beautiful turn of phrase, like the county being drained by the River Boyne. Kind of when you go back to flooding plains and all that thing, that we have nature intact that does the jobs that we're trying to do. We don't need to build concrete walls around rivers, etc., etc. That's oh, another right. episode, isn't it? Yep. Uh, county Mead also has the only two Gael talked areas in the province of Leinster at Rathcarn and Bolia Gibb. There you go. Yeah. Isn't Blonde and Coffee from Rathcarn? And the Coffees, aren't they from Rathcarn? I am not familiar with her location, but I am very familiar with her and I love her. Yes. Big up, Blonnet. Trim Castle is Ireland's largest Anglo Norman castle, but more importantly, it's also the place where the film Braveheart was shot. Done. Oh my god, I've just looked up Blonnie Coffee's Wikipedia page and she was born in Canada. Oh. With that red hair. Yeah. Wow. But I, I think love she her so is. Much. Oh no, yes. She was raised in the Guelph of, of Rathcarn, County Meath. There you go. Can I just say one thing about Trim? <laughs> no, no. Can I just say <laughs> no. one thing? <laughs> okay, fine, go. Trim Castle um is really haunted. <laughs> Wow, what a great insight in. <laughs> Thanks a million for sharing that with us. <laughs> Any other facts you've got there? No. <laughs> cool. Next on the list, Meath is home to one of three UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Uh, the passage tombs of Brunabonia are 5,000 years old. And that is 500 years more than the pyramids of Egypt. This like every time we do these facts, Ireland is better than everywhere else. Yes, like, correct. Pyramids, we've got Bruna Bonia. Olympics, we've got something else, which I will tell you now. Where is that one? There is. Well, can I just say, like, Newgrange is very pertinent to our episode today. So just hold that ancient fact in your mind because (laughs) that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, And also very pertinent to our episode today. Meath is the home of Tato Park and the largest wooden roller coasters there. And you can have your wedding there. I Imagine the cheese and onion wedding. I <laughs> It would be so cheesy. <laughs> I just don't like animals being kept in enclosures. So I don't I'm not a fan of Tata Park. I've never it's been there. It's got a roller coaster. Yeah, but I mean I also saw that recently they're doing some like big Nathan Carter concert there and everything and ISPCC have come out and be like, You can't have massive gigs in a place where you have animals. You know, it's very I've seen a lot of animals at a lot of festivals I've been to. <laughs> Zing! <laughs> I just don't like zoos and yeah. animal parks. There's actually a lot to be said for zoos and from an anthropology reasoning, but I'm not. I don't know enough about it, so I'm not going to fight you for it. But maybe we could look into it. Another I time. just think that that's made up to excuse them, like having. I mean, what far better to just improve animals' natural habitats? Anyway. Yeah, but we're too busy burning them down. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Obviously, that's not a laughing matter. As you can get married in Taylor Park, wait till you hear this. Up until the 1920s, couples could legally get married just by walking towards each other. What? <laughs> as long as they did so in Town, County Meath, and only on St. Bridget's Day. And if the marriage failed, they could also divorce at the same spot they got married and even on the same day of marriage. And by doing so, all they had to do was walk away. Is that like... I, like, I would be married about 20 times. The custom... Well, no, I actually wouldn't. I take that back. I don't want to get married. The custom was based on an old Irish Breton law which allowed for temporary marriages to happen. Now, wow. obviously, it's been outlawed since. But maybe that could have been brought up in the divorce referendum. Maybe it would have gone a bit faster. Yeah, Catholicism kind of destroyed all Rectables. of our Breton and also Druidy vibes. 
Uh, speaking of our Druidy vibes, according to legend, and I think the legend is true, Samhain, which is the ancient Celtic festival that we now call Halloween, originated in County Meath at the Hill of Ward. Chalakta. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> Ch- Chalakta, yeah. Near at Boy, more than 3,000 years ago. Mm. Bananas. Um, I'm a big Halloween fan. I actually think like autumn Halloweeny Octobery vibes are it's my favorite part of the year. Oh no, absolutely not. Give me the sun. No, I like the like bluster and the leaves changing and all the sense of like, you know, spookiness. That's mm. my vibe. Mm. I'm not a spooky bitch. Meath is known as the Royal County because many centuries ago, High Kings of Ireland came to the Hill of Tara, your favourite place, um, in the centre of County Meath to be crowned in elaborate kingship rituals. Like the absolute glamour that was going on in Meath. It's like, it's so like witchcraft, not witchcrafty, it's just so mm, gorge, like crownings and mystical shit. <laughs> yes, very <laughs> much so. Um, this, oh yeah. Ireland's version of the Olympic Games, uh, the Great Enoch, took place at Taltown, also known as Taltown in English. I just I'm just bouncing from English to Irish all the time these days. It's just I just can't help it. Sorry, it's located halfway between Kells and Navan, and uh, for over three thousand years it happened. And mythical young warriors tested their strength and prowess. That sounds hot. In a medley of their usual events like wrestling, boxing, chariot racing, swimming. Horses through the river at dawn, that sounds shit. And sham aquatic fights. Wow. Um, what is a sham aquatic fight? So, actually, I'm glad you asked that. A sham aquatic fight. <laughs> Probably should have looked that up. No idea. I would say if the word sham, maybe a fake uh, like fight in Hang the on, water. you have here, an artificial lake was created showing how seriously the games organisers took the responsibility. Oh, right, okay. So they basically dug a lake they for the sham aquatic. They built lakes. Aquatic- to mm. provide for these proper sporting facilities. So this is like a precursor to synchronised swimming, basically, is what you're saying. I am not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they were like having these like, maybe it's like mud wrestling or something. Like, but in the water. But in the water. Mm. Who knows? Maybe we'll have a look into that. Um, we all know Newgrange is the eldest known deliberately orientated structure in the world. So that means that it's aligned at to dawn at the winter solstice on December 21st mm-hmm. like I would sweat to go to that I used to I've like when have been to Newgrange a bajillion times because I love it and it, I know obviously maybe was it like 15 or 20 years ago that they closed off the actual uh, tomb to visitors but before that I used to go all the time and into the tomb yeah stop it yeah and it's re- really amazing and it's just I, I just think it's so fab so um, We're so actually hashtag blessed. Like, I can't get over how wonderful Ireland is. Yeah. I love, I love these facts. It, it's literally made me be the most in love. I might start sounding Valentine's notes to Ireland. Genuinely magical place. I love Newgrange. I love around the Hill of Tara. I love Nowth and Douth. I love all the Boyne Valley. I think it's fab. <laughs> and here's some places I love. I'm <laughs> only joking. Also really good honey around there as well. Uh, do you know what also is quite magical? Well. There's a pl- there, well, it's not there anymore, but there was a house called Muff House in Nobber. <laughs> and that ends our fact. No, it doesn't. I have one more. This is actually nothing to do with me, but I came across it when I was looking for facts. Do you know, apparently, <laughs> the windmills in Ireland 
are the only windmills that go anti-clockwise. All the other windmills in the whole world go clockwise. Are li- like our, our turbine ones? Like the ones no, that like are generating just, electricity? No, 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 just windmills. And why do they go? Nobody knows. Weird. See, it's something to do with the mystics mm. and druids and Hill of Tara. And I'd say it's probably something else. But anyway, windmills, who knew? Awesome. Can we play some Clonids there? Can we play <laughs> Newgrange by Clonids? You have a little fact about Clonids, Una, that you'd like to share. And maybe you wouldn't like to share, but I'd like you to share it. I I just said it to you off mic. It's not for... Anyway. What did you used to do? I just mentioned the fact that I used to teach interpretive dance to teenagers. And one one of the songs that we used was Clonids Newgrange because it was this dance about Newgrange. That is absolutely beautiful. I don't know where you get your layers from. <laughs> One minute you're doing this and the next minute you're like teaching interpretive dance. <laughs> yeah, but it was when I was like a teenager. I worked Going at this. Going to Tara all the time. <laughs> I worked at um, this um, Irish, like private summer Irish course. And one of the things that we did was um, dance. And considering that I had done ballet for many years, um, I taught interpretive <laughs> dance to these children. You're like and an absolute onion. And uh, quite successfully, I might add. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, well, thank you, Clanet, for bringing that magical moment to us. You're welcome. Our county rep this week is Trevor O'Shea from Body Tonic. But instead of him just saying a little spiel about me in this podcast, we are giving you an entire bonus podcast uh, with an interview with Trev, who rarely gives interviews. Um, So we're going to be talking about all of the discourse around creative cultural space and social space and clubs and bars and all that kind of stuff in the city with Trev. And he's going to be shedding light on the hoo-ha around the show and what happens for Body Tonic next. So that is an entire bonus podcast for all of our Patreon supporters. Um, if you want to listen to that, please support us on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. Go Meads! Okay, so this week's county is Mead and we're asking whether everything we know about Newgrange is wrong or at least different I want you to cast your mind back now to last summer, scorching weather and in many parts of the country, scorched earth. It's in this context that two men, Anthony Murphy of Mythical Ireland and the photographer Ken Williams, made a discovery that shook the world of archaeology. Newgrange is, of course, already an internationally famous site of huge significance, but it turns out we don't know the half of it. On July 10th, 2018, a huge monument was discovered on the UNESCO World Heritage Site, described as the find of the century. This has coincided with the rethink about the scale of structures at Newgrange with over 70 potential new monuments reported to the National Monument Service last summer. So to chat about this, we are delighted to talk to one of the people who discovered the largest of these, a massive henge on the Brunabonia site, Anthony Murphy. How's it going? Oh, how are you? I'm great. Um, Tell us a little bit about your own background, Anthony. Yeah, I have a huge interest in astronomy and I also have a huge interest in ancient history and the archaeology of the Boyne Valley. Uh, About 20 years ago, 
uh, well over 20 years ago now I teamed up with a local artist Richard Moore uh, and we started researching the monuments and the alignments and the astronomy and uh, wrote a book together called End of the Setting Sun uh, and since then I've sort of just become more and more enthused and energised about the whole landscape and all of the myths and the astronomical connections uh, and uh, I've actually just recently completed my seventh book so you could say that it's kind of really grabbed me, you know. And what did we, like, what drew you to Newgrange and what did we know about it, um, and I suppose in astrological terms, let's say, and all the alignments that Solstice known that before last summer? Um, well, we knew a substantial amount um, because the complex of monuments that's there at Brunabonia was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site uh, in the 1990s, in 1993, I think. Um, and, of course, there were extensive excavations of Newgrange, and especially at Nouth. Uh, the excavations at Nouth lasted for 40 years. And so a huge amount was revealed. But I suppose um, what what we knew about the place was that it was incredibly complex, it was huge, that these were the grandest and most lavishly decorated uh, stone monuments in Ireland some of the largest in Europe and the world. Um, and we knew it was an impressive landscape. We knew that Newgrange had this very special alignment where on the shortest days of the year, the rising sun casts its light into the central chamber there, um, something that was hinted at in the mythology of the site long before the excavations and the restoration. Uh, but what last summer demonstrated to us was that there was a whole complex of slightly later monuments, late Neolithic monuments, and and a great deal of these were perhaps made from timber and, you know, had ditch sections dug out of the earth. In other words, they were the type of monuments that, although they were massive when they were standing, they were transient and they didn't last. And so no surface trace remains of some of these monuments. And so just when you thought, you know, that the landscape had been studied thoroughly and completely uh, uh, you know along come these two guys with their drones and find a whole load of stuff that we never knew was even there Were you actually out there looking for something in particular or what were you up to when you were there last summer? I suppose I had become aware of the headlines in the British media over the previous couple of days indicating that quite a, a, a number of new as it were new and in inverted commas uh, archaeological finds had been made or previously unknown monuments had been made as a result of the drought. Now, I didn't expect to find anything significant at Brunabonia for the aforementioned reason that the place has been so scoured by archaeologists and examined so closely by so many experts over such a long period of time. The other thing is that I was encouraged to fly over Site P. Site P is an, an embanked enclosure or an embanked henge, one that is very obvious from the air and even from the ground because you can see the remnants of its great earthen banks um, because the archaeologist Steve Davis of UCD said to me you know that you're likely to see parch marks in the grass there that might indicate features of that monument that we hadn't seen before and so I was flying with a certain amount of intent A. to capture images of Site P and B, I suppose, in the back of my mind to see if maybe something else might reveal itself. Never expected in a million years that I'd find a 500 foot wide 
uh, late Neolithic Henge. Never in a million years would I have suspected that something like that was down there. Can you describe what you were thinking um, when you actually saw this this footage and did you realise straight away what you'd stumbled upon? <laughs> it's funny because in the first few moments, and uh, I've tried to relay this, um, um, I have a new book about the, the discovery, which is due to be published. It's coming out this month, actually, at the end of October, call, called Drone Henge. Which is which is the name that this, this monument has has been given by the popular media in the days after the discovery. So, I first of all I see it, and 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 I, I blurt out the words, "What the hell is that?" And I fly the drone towards it. And in those first few moments of disbelief, I'm thinking this is something like you know where a tractor has driven around in a circle in a field and revved up its tires to leave rut marks in certain places because of the segmentation of the circle and 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 then i thought you know or maybe it's a maybe there's a circus down here and a big top was put up there and left its imprint and i was even perhaps momentarily thinking you know is this one of these crop circles that you find a lot of in the uk but within i suppose five or ten seconds of having first seen it as I flew closer to it I realised it was actually a standing crop I mean this isn't a crop that had been flattened or damaged um, and I think pretty quickly then um, you know within uh, probably 30 seconds to a minute um, having drawn Ken's attention to it um, with the both of us now flying over capturing images of it I think we both realised that the only likely explanation for this was something like a hinge because it, that would be the only thing that would be big enough. Um, you know, you don't get five hundred foot wide ring forts, for instance. You don't get five hundred foot wide Bronze Age barrows, which are the sorts of monuments that you know you could discover because there's so many of them that were ploughed out over the years and, and hidden away. So yeah, I suppose within a very short space of time, less than a minute after having first seen it, I think we both realised um, that this was this, this was a hinge, and in that case very ancient, very large, and of course in the context of Brunadonia, a very significant discovery. Could you tell us what these monuments were used for back in the day? <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> that is the question. And it's Come a question on, that I'm exploring in the new book. I'll give you the best guess. And the best guess is that these are arenas. Arenas for... Now, archaeologists will use the word ritual, and sometimes when an archaeologist says ritual, it means, well, we haven't a clue what went on in there. I have taken some educated guesses. The mythology suggests... The mythology of Newgrange suggests they might have been sporting arenas. Now, we know that there are sites mentioned in the old Irish uh, manuscripts uh, and the old Irish myths called Enoch sites, O-E-N-A-C-H, and these were places where great assemblies were held at a particular time of the year, most of them at the harvest at Lunasa. So Enoch um, is fair, is it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. These are his, now these are historic events, but the archaeologist uh, or the anthropologist Ronald Hicks of Ball State University in, um, in Muncie in Indiana in the States suggested in his work that Enoch sites possibly go all the way back into prehistory and that in fact what we're looking at is a, a, a ritual gathering space where huge numbers of people came to partake in a fair around which there were lots of different events. There may have been, you know, political events. There may have been trade, as you say, like a fair and then sporting and entertainment. Now, 
what form that took is open to question. But one of the possibilities with Drone Henge and several of the other henges in the Boyne Valley is that, you know, there were huge numbers of people spectating at whatever took place in the centre of those monuments. They're clearly designed with crowds in mind, you know, which makes them very different to the passage tombs, which are these enormous monuments, but they only have this very um, confined, intimate space in the interior. I mean, you can only fit comfortably 10 or 12 people into the chamber of Newgrange, but if you wanted to hold a big event with a big audience, you could fit a couple of thousand people in to the interior of one of these great hangars. It's the li- what we're looking at is the likelihood that you know these were these were um, uh, uh, areas where crowds gathered in its, in, in its simplest form. That's that's how we can describe it. it the, the intimate details of what took place there, we can only guess at. What do we know about the recreational activity of, I don't know what you call people, is this like druids? Is that a, is that the, uh, a, a term that would make sense about the people who are hanging out at Newgrange? What do we know about the recreational activities or what sporting activities were they be? Or was it just like a giant party that they were having? Um, well, we know very little um, because we're dealing with structures that are between four and a half thousand and five thousand years old. Unfortunately, uh, you know, we don't have writing from the period. period. We can't say for certain whether mythology contains uh, information about um, Neolithic happenings. We rely on the archaeological record to tell us what little we know about those times. Um, There's one thing that we do know about similar sites in England is that you know, people did bring their food in the form of live animals to such events and then they slaughtered them on site and ate them as part of, you know, their their festivities. Because a lot of the Anach, uh sites are associated with Lunasa, we could speculate too that there was the bounty of the harvest to be enjoyed as well. So clearly food is a big part of it. But unfortunately, the difficulty with Dronehenge and in fact nearly all of the henges in Ireland is that there's a serious lack of excavation of Irish henges. Therefore, we are seriously hindered in our interpretation of them. We rely, by and large, on the results of excavations from across the water. Only one henge out of a possible dozen henges, uh, there are possibly as many as 12 at Brunabonia, only one was excavated, and that was the Monk Newtown henge in the 1970s, and it was a rescue excavation because there was there was um, some sort of a building being, being put on top of it. And um, so we have very, very sparse evidence as to what took place. So a great deal of what you'll see written about these sites is speculative. Well, it sounds to me that they were just all having great big graves, if you ask me. But tell me this, how come the hot weather exposed all the uh, findings? Well, that's a very uh, pertinent question because without that um, drought, we may not have made the discovery that the the circumstances, I suppose, are very serendipitous. What happens is if you dig a hole in the ground, and so Dronehenge, we think, without excavating it, we think consists of an, a, two, two sets of inner circles, broken um, ditch markings, surrounded by two rings of uh, giant 
uh, post holes which we suspect supported uh, timber posts. If you dig a hole in, 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 in the earth for a trench or for a post hole and you leave it and say there's a post, a big timber post in the hole and it rots away and over time, you know, the hole fills in. It fills in with organic material mostly. And so the soil constituency is different to the surrounding soil. It's a different density. And then it has a different moisture retention rate. In the case of the drought, we had had almost, at that stage, by 10th of July, I mean, there was no rain in May or June. So we had, we had had over two months without rain in the Boyne Valley, without any significant rain. I think it was, uh, I, I, I don't remember any rain falling during that period, you know. Well, what happens is that the crops are, basically drying out for lack of moisture. But the ones growing over these filled-in archaeological features, their roots go a little bit deeper because that soil, as I said, it's perhaps made of a slightly um, different... uh, It has a different composition. It has more organic material, and it retains the trace moisture in the earth that little bit more efficiently than the surrounding soil. So the crops growing above the archaeology tend to be a little bit greener and a little bit healthier. The result of that is from the air, uh, you know, in a drone photograph or video, there is a contrast in the colour and the health of the crop revealing uh, features that are actually beneath the surface, although the image that you're seeing is a contrast in the crop for maybe four, four feet or so above the ground. It's really an extraordinary process. I mean, archaeologists call them crop marks, and, you know, crop marks have been used to discover uh, previous un- unknown monuments for decades since the earliest um, archaeologists who, who took to the air in aircraft, you know, in previous decades. Now, thankfully, we have a much cheaper way and a much safer way, I suppose, of getting into the air with the drones and having a look, a look down. So essentially what you're seeing is a contrast in the, in the colour and the health of the crops. And this is what we saw as well around the kind of the World War era era signs on in Dalkey and, and Wicklow and stuff like that as well, right? They kind of just came to the surface when, when the drought happened last summer. Um, well, actually, in that case, oh, it was a slightly different process because okay. those that, that sign, I think, had been covered with gorse, right. you know, these forest bushes. And what had happened was there was a fire because of the drought, because of the heat, everything was tinder dry, you know. And because all the sh- all the scrub was burnt away, the sign became revealed again. Ah. Um, so yeah, I mean the drought is still responsible, although it's like a different Just process a different in way, that yeah. case. What else is yeah. is out there in, in in the in the Boyne Valley around Newgrange that you think could be unearthed or discovered in in the coming years? I have to be honest. At this stage, I don't think there could be too much else, but. One never knows. So this summer, uh, Steve Davis from UCD and uh, uh, an international group of archaeological researchers revealed that they had found up to 40 monuments in the vicinity of Newgrange using geophysical techniques, you know, ground penetrating equipment um, without actually having to dig the earth. uh, Now, I think at this stage... um, between the discoveries of last summer, I mean, Dronehenge was just one of several monuments that myself and Ken discovered. Um, and between the work that's going on with the geophysics, I don't think there's room for much else to be uh, revealed. However, um, I'm never say never, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, the possibilities, the possibility is certainly there 
that something else. And probably people said there was nothing there before your discovery, so you never know. There was just no indication on the surface that there was any anything there. There's absolutely no surface trace of it, which is extraordinary because the one next door to Dronehenge, LP2 it's called, it was revealed during LIDAR surveys uh, about a decade ago um, and it, it, it showed the tiniest, tiniest blip on the landscape that led archaeologists to investigate it further with geophysics and then they found the remnant of this henge. But Dronehenge, when you look at the LIDAR, there's just nothing there that says there's a huge monument beneath the surface. It mm. really is extraordinary. Finally, Anthony, um, and, and congratulations on all your amazing discoveries. It really is like kind of incredible, you know. But I was just wondering yeah. if you think that what happened last summer puts a different lens on Newgrange. As you said previously, you know, the passage tomb aspect of it, which is extraordinary in itself, felt very um, limited. And, and it does seem that with your discoveries, a different lens is on Newgrange now is a much more social kind of place. Yeah, that's. I think that's a very good summary of, you know, how this changes things. I mean, we already knew that there were several henges in the Boyne Valley, but we didn't know that there was this vast late Neolithic complex of monuments. Now, the mythology hints at it, because in the Tuchmark Etain, which is the wooing of Etain, um, Elkmar is one of the chief deities. And I suppose you could consider him in some ways a king, uh, a prehistoric king, is described as being on top of Newgrange, looking out upon the landscape of Brunabonia and watching the boys at play in the playing fields, you know. And this gives me a sense that somebody in in, in the late Neolithic, more than four and a half thousand years ago, standing on the sort of flattened platform on the top of Newgrange, almost as if it was designed to be some sort of a viewing platform, would get this tremendous view out over the terraces of the floodplain of the Boyne, in in the bend of the Boyne, looking down towards the river, and would have beheld a vast complex of monuments. And I have to add that that vast complex of monuments did not spring up out of the ground. That complex has to have been built by human beings. And the amount of labour involved suggests, to me at least, that huge numbers of people were involved, more than could have been sustained by the local landscape. In other words, my contention is that a huge number of people were travelling to Brunabonia to partake in these ritual, uh, seasonal, uh, festive events uh, with the focus on the hinges and less so on the passage tombs, which is probably where the ancestors had been buried, you know. So we kind of had our own Olympics, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. We did. We did. Because the Einach Talche, which is the Telltown Games, were instituted by the deity Lu, who, in honour of his foster mother Talchu. And and they were games of mourning, in a sense, mourning the loss of his foster mother. But at the same time, they were a great celebration. Uh, And Einach Talche is an equivalent, as it were, to what I have found in Lower Nahira, which is the, the book of the dun cow so-called because it was allegedly written on on the on the uh, the skin of a, a cow that belonged to St. Kieran of Monaster Boy or not Monaster Boy Clon McNoise um, well in there there's a reference that actually says there were three chief Enochs in Ireland one of them was Enoch Talche one of them was Enoch Crochan which is uh, Rathcrochan in, in, in the west in, in Roscommon 
and Enoch Inbroga, which is uh, similar to Sheed Inbroga, is the old name for Newgrange. Enoch Inbroga, I think, describes this uh, this festive gathering at Brunabonia. Um So yeah, that's exactly it, and probably games, and who knows, maybe a bit of blood sport in there as well, a little bit of human sacrifice maybe when we eventually do uh, excavate, we might find, uh, as I think have, has been found at sites in, in Europe, at Pomelta in Germany, for instance, which is a, a giant hen site, they found evidence of, of human remains in some of the trenches uh, that had met violent deaths, you know. I think we're too sound in Ireland to have done that. I don't know, I don't know. Listen, Anthony, thank you so much for that insight. It's really, really fascinating and great work. Um, You've done the state some service with your amazing drone henge discovery. Thanks so much for joining us in United Ireland. Thank you. Anthony's book Drone Henge is out on Liffey Press at the end of the month just in time for Halloween nice sound vibes and you can also keep up with his work on mythicalireland.com So what can you do to get into the Drone Henge lifestyle? (laughs) Such a great name for a book Uh, Obviously you can get your sound on which is coming very soon and you can check out Puka Festival uh, which is P-U-C-A-Festival.com and that is a new festival that is happening around the country but this one is happening in Mead so get on it. It looks like it's going to be absolutely whopper. There's loads of... uh artists who are going to be playing and spooky goings on. Yeah, it's happening in Athboy, Drim and Drada. So there's um, loads of ghosty, soundy, Halloweeny stuff. And I'm really glad that we're reclaiming um, Halloween as, um, you know, we invented it. Irish people. We did. Like, we it's did. in our facts. I can't wait. Um, you can get back in touch with your Druid roots by visiting Newgrange, Nouth and Douth, etc. I always like to bop around Tara around the solstice. Do you? Yeah, I genuinely do. I will sometime. Uh, I must get a car. Check out Anthony's website and work on www.mythicalireland.com and Ken Williams' amazing photography on shadowsandstone.com. That sounds so myth- mystical, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, his Shadow photos are amazing as well. Um, you can enter the Newgrange Solstice Lottery on brunabonia.com. Dot, or at opw.ie I've always wondered how you entered I'm delighted yeah you just email know. them your, your address basically um, take this out of the thing too many people will enter now well I mean I think too many people do already 30,500 people entered for, for the spots. solstice in 2019 and there are 60 names drawn oh my god but if you're not in you can't win and everyone someone has to be a winner <laughs> yeah um, and finally you can support us on Patreon.com, United Ireland. Uh, we're very appreciative. We had a lovely uh, batch of new supporters this week, which is lovely to have. Feels like a warm, enveloping hug. Uh, so thank you for that. And please do think about supporting us. Loads of people have said, oh, yeah, I've had the web page open and I just haven't done it. Fucking do it. <laughs> please. <laughs> and thank you. Uh, get in the sea this week, Andrea. I'm intrigued. <laughs> oh, God. Now... <sighs> I've had a rant about a bank a few weeks ago and I'm annoyed at myself that I'm having a rant again. But like, it's just outrageous. And I don't know who I should be directing my rants at. But basically, I went to my bank the other day to log on, check my balances, do my bits. And now I can't log on to my AIB account if I don't have it authenticated by my phone. So let's say 
as could happen I'm bopping around Asia living my free and easy life just like letting my hair down I'm just not being influenced by any technological things and I need to transfer money so I bop into the internet cafe because I don't have my own laptop mm-hmm. sign in I don't have a phone I can't get up my bank account why are they trying to lock me out of banks it's so frustrating now I did tweet them uh, silently obviously because I don't like giving out about brands and going mental on Twitter but they said that it was part of a European directive and it can't be turned off but I I mean I have I can <laughs> just check my I think I can just check my AIB account online without it being authenticated well I have it in writing here from AIB that you can't turn it off and that once you're set up for strong customer authentication oh I must have done it using your phone and you've accessed <laughs> your online banking we're getting to the bottom of something here <laughs> did you actually turn it on yourself? Yeah, but like once you do it you can't turn it back off again like I can't have two like I don't now have to have one device to access my bank I need two devices to get into my own bank account <laughs> get in the sea Baby, <laughs> stop it. Everyone stop laughing. Serious. No fun around here. Fave bits this week. I'll go first. My fave bits. Um, okay, so two of my fave bits at the weekend. Number one, Strawberries, the club night that I yeah. went to in Soundhouse in Dublin. New queer uh, club night from the people who brought us Grace. And it was absolutely fab. Such a nice crowd. Just deadly vibes. Um really amazing tunes uh, particularly from um, Aoife O'Neill from uh, Dumb Digital Radio was just knocking out of the park and I had an absolute ball so well done yeah it was really good crack and my other fave bit was mom so jealous about this oh yeah did you not go see it? No, I'm absolutely raging. I actually felt like texting you right after I saw it saying, beg, borrow, steal. No, I was trying to. Like, mm. I really wanted to see it because I saw Swan Lake, um, which was brought to you by the same people. And literally every single person was tweeting how wonderful it was. I was like, oh, I'm so, so here's It will th- definitely come back. I feel like it got such rave reviews, it's coming back. Yeah, so Mom is was a production at Dublin Theatre Festival. Um and it is just an absolutely amazing dance piece basically and very much fits in with our theme this week it's very interpretive you know pagan vibes and um, it was just so invigorating it's by Michael Keegan Dolan and you you mentioned Swan Lake I actually wasn't a big fan of Swan Lake oh my god I was obsessed with it I I went to it twice I feel like this is you know leaps 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 forward and jumps. Literally, and jumps. <laughs> but like, I would never be an, a, a dance kind of fan. I'm, it's not my bag, but I just feel like I might love this. Dance is my bag. And well, it, da- I love dancing. Yeah, I think I, lo- I would prefer to go and see like a dance piece than a lot of, um, you know, conventional theatre a lot of the time. So this really, really amazing. And there was such brilliant energy in the room. And it was just kind of, it was one of those things where I came out of it going, you know, this is why I love culture in Ireland and it really felt between like that and strawberries that I kind of got a I don't know a renewed sense of vigour with regards to all the stuff happening in the city there's just there's a lot there's an awful lot of stuff happening throwing their hats into the ring to make this place wonderful so So thank you to everyone keep an eye out for that um, 
it's kind of hard to describe but there's just like loads of people on stage Cormac Bagley an amazing uh, musician was was kind of the lead person on it in this awesome ritualistic dance piece that transpired around it it was very very special and well um, earning okay fine stop going on about it it's over I'm raging okay my other fave bit um, these folks emailed me uh, they're from self-organised architecture and they basically work on these co-housing um events and projects now co-housing very different to co-living and one of their events is called co-housing cafe and it's um an open networking and information event where you can hear and share information about co-housing and how to get involved in a project yourself what is co-housing co-housing is basically people coming together um building their own kind of housing oh they did it on grand designs they did a social housing co-housing and they all built their own houses and but like they'd build one as a team and then move on to the next one so that everyone was involved and it was such an amazing community and I love Grand Designs. Yeah, like an, an example of it would be like Clock Jordan um, down in Tipperary. Like these kind of more community focused and communal uh, housing projects. But if you are interested in co-housing and if you are interested in self-organised architecture, they are doing their co-housing cafe this Saturday the 12th um, at the School of Architecture and Henrietta Place in Dublin 1, 12 to 4. So if you're interested in that kind of vibe, pop into that. Andrea, tell me about your fave bits. My fave bits? I am so absolutely chuffed and over the moon for Variety Jones, who got a Michelin star yesterday. Like, just one of my favourite places in the world, and I'm delighted they're getting the recognition. But, like, obviously, with the Michelin star, then comes, like, the difficulty of getting tables and all that shit, but because it's a tinchy restaurant. But it's just so good for the brothers because they're so sound and they are just there to do good shit. And to see it recognised is just brilliant. Uh, very importantly, my other fave bit Sex and the City, the movie one, is back on Netflix. Sex and the City 2 was there it's gone thank God because it's shite Um, but number one is back now the next thing I want to know about is when the episodes are going to be put there as well it's so frustrating how can we have friends on 24 hours a day and we don't have Sex and the City anywhere just give it to us give the people what they want and I put it up on my Instagram the other day the amount of people who wrote back going I just want to watch the episodes Can, can it be put somewhere so watch out it might be a campaign starting soon and my final fave bit one of my other favourite places in the world um, was included in the Condé Nast top 50 of hotels in the world the Westbury I am never happier than when I'm having breakfast in Balfs with a delicious coconut flat white um, they're also sounded there and I sit in there for maybe like four hours writing the podcast content. Yeah, you, I mean, the, obviously the Westbury's been around for a bajillion years, but you recently introduced me to Balfs. It's just the best. And um, it's really nice. It's a lovely place. But also they made uh, number 47 in the list of the top 50 hotels in the whole world from Condé Nast, which is my favourite uh, magazine. But number 48 was Ballyfin mm. um, which I've never been to I don't think I can afford it no it's um, like it's magical I, this is where Kanye and Kim are always renting out as well um, and it's very expensive though it's, it's really like, expensive it's but anyone who's ever stayed there have said it is completely worth it I'm just looking at their price list now um, a deluxe room 
so this uh, for um, in the summertime is 960 euro a night <laughs> like the Shadow Marmont is cheaper <laughs> Owen Murphy obviously did the pricing yeah <laughs> but uh, it's affordable it's fine 940 a night perfect bargain why don't you put five families in there I mean apparently is spectacular but who the fuck can afford that not me well clearly some people can because it's yeah like rich Americans rich Americans yeah. but anyway shout out to the Westbury and shout out to Balfs I love you this podcast is produced by Andrew Mang and a Castaway Media with support from Sue Bennett Ian has had four coffees this morning <laughs> Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack and Sarah Fox did all of our design and she did the design for our new tote bags oh my god I am drooling they are so sexy um, you can find links to all if you want one of the tote bags you're going to have to become a Patreon just saying uh, you can find links to all our socials on our website unitedirelandpodcast.com and if you're enjoying listening please do let us know there's nothing nicer than getting a lovely uh, message telling you you're great um, if you've any suggestions for subjects you'd like us to look at for an episode drop us a little mail now to see us out it's another big rave tune I keep forgetting to go for disco but like I can't help it it's just it's in my bones at the moment so enjoy Goldfish by Kulch I've been Una Malali. I've been Andrea Horan this has been United, United Ireland. Ireland and that was Meath, Meath.